0: All right, good morning. My name is Stuart McCrave. The joy of serving on staff is one of the pastors. The Bible is the greatest book ever written, and it's it's argued that Romans is its greatest book, and as such, Romans has been described as the Bible's Mount Everest, with chapter 8 being its summit, its highest peak. This chapter starts with no condemnation for those who are in Christ and ends with no separation for those who are in Christ. The the view from the top is spectacular. I uh, I, I love watching uh, the discovery shows uh, about the mountain climbing and in particular the ones about Mount Everest and the culmination of seeing them get to the top and the view from the summit is always breathtaking. And and that's what we get here. There are at least 15 glorious truths that I see. Now, they're not on the screen, and frankly, that's because I I want you to be overwhelmed by the greatness and the grandeur of this chapter. So just, just listen here's at least 15 truths that I see. Freedom from eternal condemnation, union with Christ, freedom from the power of sin, sin's condemnation, the empowering work of the Holy Spirit to fulfill in us the requirement of law summed up in love, the Spirit's guarantee of bodily resurrection, the Spirit's empowerment to kill sin, God's adoption of us, assurance of our salvation, our inheritance with Christ, the hope in present suffering and future glory, the Holy Spirit's intercessory work on our behalf, God's providence, God's unbreakable salvation from foreknowledge, the predestination to effectual calling, to justification and to glorification, and finally eternal security, God's inseparable love for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's breathtaking, that's just just what I saw. We're gonna spend this next six Sundays looking through this chapter, Romans 8, the Bible's summit. Now, this morning, let me give you kind of an outline expectation of how we're going to go about this morning. One, because we're sort of gonna be parachute dropping into this letter, uh, I wanna give us an overview of Romans, and then I want to give us a sort of brief overview of the first seven chapters. Then we will look at just the first four verses. So first, a 30,000-foot flyover of Romans. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in Rome. Uh, the Apostle Paul was not always known as Paul. He was first known as Saul because he was a Jewish Pharisee from Tarsus and on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians, God, uh, the resurrected Jesus, stopped him in his tracks, saved him and commissioned him as one of his sent ones, apostles to the Gentiles. And since his primary mission was to the Gentiles, Saul adopted the Greek translation of his name, Paul. So that's how Saul became Paul. And as an apostle of Jesus, Paul would start churches and he would write to churches and he would write to churches that he both started and didn't start. He would write to these letters to give them further instruction on the gospel and then also how to live in light of the gospel. And the, uh, the letter to the Romans is, is one of those letters to a church that Paul did not start himself. Now, Paul wrote Romans with a unique purpose in mind. Gospel unity for the sake of gospel advancement. Gospel unity for the sake of gospel advancement. Paul hoped that the church in Rome would be a staging ground for him to take the gospel further west to Spain. But at present, the church was disunified and Functionally of no use to him in his missionary efforts in being disunified. Well, why was that? Well, we know from Acts and this letter that the Roman church that Paul wrote to was made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, but it wasn't always that way. While the first converts were probably all Jewish, earlier in its church history, in the Roman church history, Claudius, the emperor of Rome, expelled all the Jews out of. Rome. And while they're gone, the church yet grew amongst the Gentiles. And then several years later, the Jews were allowed to come back into Rome, both the Christians and non-Christians. They came back into Rome. The Christian Jews found a very different church than what they had left. It's now very non-Jewish in its practice and customs and traditions. And the the Gentiles were Jesus' followers, but church looked very different than what they had left it. And so no surprise then, there's tension and division amongst Jesus' people between the law-observing Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians who live free of the restrictions of the Mosaic law. This is what Paul wrote into. I mean, this is, this is really fascinating. Because this is like, we intercepted ancient mail. That's what this, this, this amounts to. We intercepted ancient mail, and as we think about letters even today or emails, there's an author, there's a recipient, and then there's what's going on. There's the situation. This is the situation that Paul wrote into, a people disunified and confused about the implications of the gospel for how Jesus' multi-ethnic people were to live together. So Paul wrote, not just for the sake of writing a treatise on the gospel, This was not for just pure education. Paul wrote a treatise on the gospel so that the Christian Jews and Gentiles in Rome would see their unity in Christ. And in that unity, they'd be of use to Paul in his missionary efforts. So Paul wrote Romans for the purpose of gospel unity, for the sake of gospel advancement. All right, there's the overview. See, we're doing all right. We're doing all right. Now, let me give you a quick overview of chapters 1 through 7. So we have context for chapter 8. I'm just going to do this in bullet point fashion. I think that'll, that'll help here. So uh, chapters 1, verses 1 through 17 is the introduction and the revelation of God's righteousness in the gospel. Then chapter 1, verse 18, all the way through chapter 3, verse 20, we see this universal, both Jew and Gentile, unrighteousness before God. Then, starting in chapter three, verse 21, all the way through chapter four, it's the topic of justification, being declared righteous. It is by faith alone. Then chapters five through eight is the, is the fruit, the resulting fruit of justification. Now, a little bit further, uh, bullet pointing five through seven, we see five verses one through 11 is peace, hope, and reconciliation. Reconciliation. Then verses 12 through 21 is grace reigns through Christ. Then the first half of chapter six, we could sum up as believers dead in sin. And then the rest of six is the believer is a slave of God. And then chapter seven is all about the believer in the law. It's got three different parts. The first part is union with Christ's death and resurrection frees believers from the law. And seven through 13 is Paul's pre-conversion experience And then the rest of chapter 7 is Paul's post-conversion experience. So chapter 8 comes off the heels of Paul talking about his his Christian experience, which in turn is a description of every Christian's experience of this this war within. In Galatians 5, he talks about this battle of the flesh versus the spirit. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you too understand this wrestling match of fighting against sin and Wanting to do what is godly. And this is important for us to see because chapter 8 is connected to the end of chapter 7. So uh, let me just read a few verses from chapter 7 so we can hear Paul's language in expressing this, this internal conflict. And I, I trust if you've been a Christian for a amount of time, you will resonate with this. Verse 15 I do not understand my own actions because I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verses 17 through 20, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me, because I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, because I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Because I do not do the good thing I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And then verses 21 through 23. So I find it to be a law that is this, this principle power of sin that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand because I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members this other law, this principle of sin waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells within my members. There's this internal wrestling and struggling for Paul that I I trust we we can relate to. And so with that, let's now look into Romans chapter eight. We're gonna look at the first four verses this morning. And here Paul provides believers with three assuring realities that we should live in light of. Three assuring realities. Let's read the passage, chapter eight, verse one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So Romans eight, one through four. Paul provides believers with three assuring realities that we should live in light of. No condemnation, freedom from the power of sin, and spiritual empowerment. The first assuring reality is seen in verse 1, no condemnation. Paul writes, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ the word therefore tells us that what is being said is a result of what was previously said and Paul may have a couple things in mind but at the very least he has these words of victory uh, this victory pronouncement at the end of chapter 7 so after describing this this wrestling match this battle this war within he says this at the end of chapter 7 verses 24 through 25 wretched man that I am Who will deliver me from this body of death? And answer, verse 25, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. As a result of God's delivering work through Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Condemnation is a a legal term found in the court system it doesn't just merely refer to the guilty verdict. It also refers to the punishment that ensues the guilty verdict. And here condemnation is the worst of punishments. This is the death sentence, but it's not not merely physical, it's also spiritual and eternal. So in other words, Paul is really saying there's no damnation sentence for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, justification is the positive parallel to no condemnation. No condemnation is like a double negative. No guilty verdict. Justification is the positive parallel to that. We we could read this this verse like, there is justification for those who are in Christ Jesus. Justification, Justification for the believer is this declaration by God. Justification for this believer is this declaration by God. In justification, God thinks of the believer's sin as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to them and as a result declares them to be right in his sight. But to give it a unique punch, Paul emphatically states what the innocent don't get. And it's, it's not just no, it's an emphatic no. It's really interesting. In the, in the Greek, there's, there's no punctuation. And so if you want to emphasize something in this language, you, you front load what you want to emphasize in the beginning of a sentence. And, and here in the Greek, no is how this sentence starts. And so it would be something like, no, therefore, there is now condemnation. No, none, Nothing, not at all, not even one pronouncement of guilt, nor even one punishment for sin that follows a guilty verdict. This means that even the possibility of condemnation for past, present, or out into the future will never happen. How? For those who are in Christ Jesus. Those who are by faith united to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are not and will not be found guilty for their sin. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The, The implication is there once was before you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, because you were born with a sin nature and because you actually sinned, each of us stood condemned before a holy God, justly deserving his righteous wrath for our sin. In fact, all of humanity stands condemned apart from, uh, before God apart from Christ. But Paul says, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and friends, that can be true for any one of us now, this morning, if you will trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Brothers and sisters, your irrevocable, unalterable, life-changing position, status, Before the holy God of the universe is no condemnation. The judge of the universe, the judge of the universe has determined in the courts of heaven to declare you not guilty for your sin nor punish you for your sin in any way because you are in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ, that is united to Christ means So goes Christ, so goes you. Christ himself would have to be cast into hell for you to be cast into hell now because you are united to Christ. The moment you trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, no condemnation was etched in stone in heaven. We we must understand that this this declaration of no condemnation or or positively justification, declared righteous, we, we must understand that no condemnation comes before our pursuit of obedience. Paul starts with no condemnation before he gets to the purpose of it in verse four, which is, Obedience, pursuing Christ-likeness, sanctification. Listen, no condemnation. Justification is the root. And obedience, Christ-likeness, sanctification is the fruit. If it's the other way around then it is us earning are right standing before God. But Paul is reminding us that before you take one step in your Christian life, you're off the performance treadmill trying to gain or maintain God's acceptance. Your acceptance before God is not based on how you are doing at any given moment in your Christian life. You're not somehow innocent on the days you're doing well and guilty on the days that you are not. You are accepted by God Because by faith you have been united to Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And to live in the good of no condemnation means you don't have to go around with a condemning, guilt laden spirit, means you don't have to live a life that resembles bearing the penalty for sin. Christ bared your penalty. F.F. Bruce says there is no reason for those who are in Christ Jesus to go on doing penal servitude as though they had never been pardoned, never been released from the prison house of sin. To live in the good of no condemnation means when you still yet sin, you, you flee to God in repentance, not as judge, but as your heavenly father, knowing that you are already accepted in Christ. No condemnation. This is the first assuring reality that we have as believers. The, the second is in verses two through three, freedom from the power of sin. Let's read verse two again. For, the word for or because explains the reason that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. It's because the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin And death. Now, Paul uses law in three basic ways. The first usage of law, sometimes he'll mean uh, the whole Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. Sometimes when uh, Paul says law, he's specifically referring to the Mosaic law. And sometimes when he uses law, it is referring to a binding principle, uh, power, or authority. Uh, These are on display in chapter seven. I kind of highlighted one of those when I was reading some of those passages earlier, but it's important to realize this because Paul uses law in two different ways in our passage. And in this verse, both instances of law refer to a governing principle, authority, or power. But in verses three and four, law refers to the Mosaic law. So we could read verse two like this, for the liberating power of the Holy Spirit, who is life and gives life, Has set you free in Christ from the enslaving power of sin that leads to death. Tony uh, Tony Evans illustrates it this way The law of sin and death is like the law of gravity. It inherently pulls you down, no matter how high you jump. But the law of the Spirit overrides gravity. It's like climbing aboard an airplane where the laws of aerodynamics apply. You can't get rid of the law of gravity, but you can transcend it. And the Spirit's law transcends the law of sin so that sin no longer controls you. The power of the Holy Spirit renders the power of sin powerless over you. And how does the Spirit do this? In Christ. Paul just can't get away from union with Christ as the means by which everything spiritually good happens. There's no condemnation in Christ. And the reason is the power of the Holy Spirit has set you free from the power of sin in Christ. Liberation from sin's power comes about as the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ and his finished work. Liberation from sin's power comes about as the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ and his finished work. And here's something else that we learn here that is true everywhere else is that the Holy Spirit does not work independently of Christ's work. This is what verse three is all about. Let's read verse three. For, or because Paul's about to explain the reason for the Spirit's liberation in Christ, it's because God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Here it is, God condemned sin in the flesh. Verses two and three are just stacking explanations for what's going on. Verse one, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse two, for this reason, the power of the Holy Spirit has set you free in Christ from the power of sin. Verse three, the reason the Spirit has set you free in Christ from sin is because in Christ, God condemned sin. God has done what the Mosaic law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Listen, the law has power to tell us what to do, it just doesn't have the power for us to do it. In fact, the law magnifies our sinfulness and proves our inability to do it. So God did what the law couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, that's what he did, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's the big deal. God condemned sin in the flesh. The law was powerless to set us free from the power of sin. The law was powerless to produce righteousness in us. So God condemned sin. He broke the power of sin through Christ and his cross. God did that by sending Jesus, who took on flesh, yet lived without sin and for sin. Sin, which means as a sin offering. Maybe your translation just says that or it's footnoted. Sent Jesus who took on flesh and for sin, which means a sin offering. So listen, through Jesus' substitutionary, in our place, atoning sacrifice for sin, Jesus canceled sin's judgment against us that we deserved and as a result, Jesus broke the power that sin had over us. Or like the hymn that we sung earlier, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, says Jesus breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the fowls clean. His blood availed for me. Let's put verses two and three together because here, together in lies this point of freedom from the power of sin. So putting them together, the power of the Holy Spirit liberates us from the power of sin as he unites us to Jesus and his crosswork of canceling sin and breaking its power. Further do you see the link between verse 1 and verse 3? Verse 1, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Verse 3 because God condemns sin in Jesus. Freedom from the power of sin. There's a similar implication with this. Everyone starts off enslaved to sin and death and needs a rescue. Paul wrote earlier in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, we, we, we desperately need to understand something here. One thing that we do get, the presence of sin remains. <laughs> we, we get that. I don't need to tell you that the presence of sin remains, that we still struggle in our heart with sin but the power of sin has been broken now let me let me say this again the power of sin has been broken but its presence remains there is remaining sin in your heart but it has been canceled and rendered powerless it's like there's still enemies on the battlefield but they have no weapons we're just going to clear him off the battlefield. Or to say it another way, in our battle against remaining sin, we fight against an already defeated enemy. Amen. And and although that is 100% our spiritual reality, when we're struggling with a repeated pattern of sin, oh boy, it, it can sort of feel like we're trapped and unable to break free. It can feel like sin does have power and we're Powerless in those moments, it's, it's way too easy to sort of functionally forget our true spiritual reality in Christ. And so we're going to actively live in the good of this by reminding ourselves and each other that we fight against cancelled, powerless sin. I and mean, family, the, the reality is That's the only sin that can successfully be fought against. Already defeated sin. We have no hope against sin that has not been canceled and its power been broken at the cross. So I don't don't know what you're up against right now. You might be in the middle of a slugfest with a repeated pattern of sin or, or maybe you're just Fighting every day just sort of the normal garden variety type sin. But but no matter, rest assured, the power of the Holy Spirit has set you free in Christ from the power of sin. You can now say no to sin and yes to righteousness. The third and final assuring reality in these verses the believer should live in light of is spiritual empowerment, spiritual empowerment. Let's read this again. I want to start with verse three because verse four kind of cuts right in the middle here. So starting with verse three, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. In order that communicates purpose. Now remember, everything in verses two and three, everything up to now has been explaining how this ultimate truth of no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus is actually true. And so verse four is really the purpose of verse one. God's purpose in declaring you No condemnation is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, what is the righteous requirement of the law? First, the law here is Mosaic. We said it earlier, so Paul has in mind the Mosaic law. Certainly the Ten Commandments, but most likely the the whole volume of Moses' law to God's people. Second requirement is singular. Maybe you noticed that, but that's actually a really strong clue for us. In fact, if you were to <clears throat> read the rest of this letter, you'd come to chapter 13 in verses eight through 10 where Paul says this, "'O no one anything except to love each other, "'for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. "'For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, "'you shall not murder, you shall not steal, "'you shall not covet.'" and any other commandment are summed up in this this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So, So what is the righteous requirement of the Mosaic law? Paul tells us, loving others. Now the verb might be fulfilled in the Greek is in the passive voice. Now, this is important, otherwise I wouldn't, I wouldn't go here. When a verb is in the passive voice, it means that it is something that's done to the person, not by the person. Active is when the person is actually doing it themselves. Passive means that it's something being done to them. So believers are being... The law is being fulfilled in believers by someone or something else. So who then does the fulfilling in us? Paul goes on, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, and here it is, but according to the spirit. Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one who fulfills the law in us. He empowers us to love others. And and truly then, the Holy Spirit empowers us towards all efforts in godliness, obedience, Christ-likeness. Now, Paul also tells us that the Spirit does so as we walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The verb walk, which simply means to live, to, to live, don't live according to the flesh, live according to the Spirit. Now, that's in the active. So that's something that we're to do how do we put these two together? One thing that's being done to us and another thing that we're we're called to do ourselves. Well, what we'll see in the coming verses of chapter eight is, if the Holy Spirit lives within you, then you will imperfectly, but in an ongoing way, pursue a life of obedience. The only way it can be, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Or, Or simply put, Fulfillment of the law in believers happens as they take steps of obedience to God by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. If the law is to be fulfilled in us, it can only happen as we live according to the Spirit. If you live according to the flesh, it's not happening. Spiritual empowerment is the assuring reality in these verses. You and I must live moment by moment by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Listen, God has not set you free from sins, condemnation, and power to just leave you to your own resources. No, God saved you, declared you righteous. No condemnation for the purpose of now actually empowering you to obedience. Philippians 1.6 tells us that God finishes what he starts. That's what's going on here. God declares us righteous for the purpose of actually transforming us into righteousness. And with the fallenness still within us and around us, thanks be to God that he empowers us. I mean, we we could talk about needing spiritual empowerment to not lust or to not covet or to not be angry, but Paul says love for others is fulfilling the law. So we're just gonna, gonna run with that. If we take steps to love others in our own strength, it will not result in honoring God. But if we take steps to love others under the empowering control of the Holy Spirit, it will. Newsflash. Loving others ain't easy. Oh, come on now. You know that, and so did the Romans. Paul is writing to a group who is disunified. They're dysfunctional. They're not loving others very well. No wonder he goes here with what it looks like for the spiritual empowerment of believers to love others. How difficult is that? At best, we're trying to love others who have the Holy Spirit within them, but are still struggling with remaining sin. Or we're trying to love others who don't have the Holy Spirit within them, but guess what? We still have our own remaining sin that we're struggling with. Trying to love others in our own strength will only produce sinful results. We either perceive success and get proud or we'll fail and experience shame or guilt or hopelessness. And so the only way for the righteous requirement of the law, loving others, to be fulfilled in us, is for you to take steps, living under the empower and control of the Holy Spirit. This is the Christian life. This is what pursuing obedience is. It's living in accordance to the Holy Spirit. Are you stuck? not making progress, feeling like you've hit a spiritual wall, struggling with anger, struggling with anxiety, struggling to love someone, could it be that you are walking in your own strength and not in the spirits? We we must continually, live under, yield ourselves to the empowering control of the Holy Spirit. It seems like the basic way to do that is by intentionally, prayerfully acknowledging our dependence upon his enabling power. And if we're acknowledging our need for his strength, we, we won't be pursuing it in ours. Man, he's waking up in the morning and admitting weakness and need for his empowerment that day. It's, it's saying with Paul, yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me when we experience godliness. It's thanking the Spirit's empowerment for that day when we're laying in our bed at night. We live in obedience according to the Spirit's empowerment by putting one prayerful, dependent foot in front of the other. What an assuring... Reality, God has not left us to our own resources to live in obedience. No, God empowers godly living. Paul gives believers three assuring realities that we should live in light of. No, no condemnation, freedom from the power of sin and spiritual empowerment. But I, but I can hear some of you saying in your weary soul, but I don't, I don't feel like any of that. I feel guilty over my sin. I feel trapped and unable to defeat my sin. I feel powerless to do anything. I keep losing my temper. I keep losing the battle with porn. I keep being lazy and not stepping up. I keep wallowing in self-pity. I keep making people big and God's small in my heart. I keep living under stress or fear. I keep you fill in the blank. Well, this is a takes one to no one situation. It said that no one talks to you more than you. You you wake up in the morning and an unending conversation with yourself. And depending on the season that you're in, the autopilot conversation, it's you listening to you through the lens of your subjective feelings about how life, others, maybe God are plotting against you. And through the lens of your feelings, you're determining how to think about yourself, how others must think about you, and surely how God must think about you. brothers and sisters, here is where the the battle of what you feel versus what is real and true in God's word must begin. No one talks to you more than you. Is your conversation wrapped up in your feelings, which often betray us? Or are you preaching the gospel to yourself? Are you living in light of the unfounded conspiracy theories that you've been drumming up? Or are you living in light of the assuring realities of who you are in Christ? And I I get it, in the the thick of it, this is easier said than done. Which is why we so desperately need each other. This, This letter wasn't written to the Roman written to the Romans. It was written to all the Christians who were in Rome. Not only did they all have the problem that Paul was writing into, but God and Christ wanted to resolve them together. He wanted them to be together in Christ. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need each other. I Me and said the, the, the Lone Ranger Christian is the dead Christian in the Christian life. We need each other. God did not save us for us to be on an island. He put us together. And so we not only need to preach the gospel to ourselves, but we also need to remind each other of the spiritual realities that are ours in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no guilt to be found nor punishment to be meted out for your sin because Christ stood guilty on your behalf. In Christ, there's freedom from the power of sin. Jesus broke the power of canceled sin and the power of the Holy Spirit liberates us from the power of sin as he unites us to Christ's atoning work on the cross. You must us together in Christ battle against an already defeated enemy and there is spiritual empowerment for obedience. God has not left us to our own resources he will finish what he has started. And through the indwelling Holy Spirit, we will be empowered toward obedience and ultimately glorification. What amazing, assuring realities these are for us to live in light of together. So let's endeavor to do that. Let's pray. God, thank you for kindly preserving this word, we could come and know you, know what you've done for us in Christ and what you are calling us to do and be by your grace, your empowering Holy Spirit. I pray as we, we, we start <clears throat> on this series of just taking in the view of the Bible Summit that we would walk away ready to worship you and to thank you for what you've done for us in Christ. You have saved us and now you are sanctifying us. You have declared no condemnation and now you are empowering us to a life of Christ likeness. Thank you. We love you. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.